Okay, everyone. Good to see y'all. Um, we are back in First Corinthians, but today we're starting a new chapter, uh, which is really exciting. And I am really, really excited about sharing this passage with y'all. Um, first, let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Um, Heavenly Father, I, I ask that you would be with us right now as we dive into your word. Father, I, I ask that as we walk through it together, you would see, you would help us see the glory of the resurrection and its necessity for the power of the gospel. I pray that, that we would be excited about um, how this changes our understanding of the gospel. Um, and I pray that you would help us see if, if there have been any insufficiencies in our own understandings of, of the, the glorious act of, of redemption that you have that you have enacted in, in your world, in your creation. Um, I, I pray that it would set our hearts on fire and that we would love you because of what we see in your scriptures tonight. I pray that you would be with me, help um, calm my nerves, and, and I, I ask that you would speak the words that, that you want um, our youth group to hear. Um, and, and I pray that, that we would have fun together, enjoying um, the, the scripture that you have so graciously given us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so we're starting 1 Corinthians 15. And um, just to start us off, I have a, a situation that I want you to consider. So you invite one of your non-believing friends to youth group one week, and miraculously, they agree to join you. And thankfully, on Friday, they follow through, and they seem to enjoy youth group a lot. They have lots of fun playing games, and they ask good questions during small group. Um, but on Saturday morning, the next day, your friend has a lot of questions. And they call you up and they're like, hey, can I like steal some of your time? I, I have all these thoughts in my head. And um, on, on Friday, everyone kept talking about the gospel. But what is the gospel? And also, what do you personally think will happen to you when you die? You hear these questions and, and what do you say? Um, I actually want you right now to just take one minute to think and jot a few thoughts down. Like what are the main points you'd make? Um, what, how would you respond? What is the gospel? And what do you personally think will happen to you when you die? And I'm not gonna ask you to share anything, but I, I do want you to honestly consider what you would say. So just take um, a minute to think about what you would say. Okay, your minute is up. Wow, that felt like a long time. <laughs> so in that one minute, some of you knew exactly what you wanted to say. Um, and, and some of you might not have had a clue what to say, but that's totally okay. And I know it's really hard to do in just a minute. Um, but let me ask you, did your gospel presentation include the resurrection? And not just Jesus rising after three days, of course, that's important but also the resurrection of believers when Jesus returns. Did your answer about what happens when you die include um, Jesus coming back and, um, and the life that you'll have in the new creation? Did you mention that one day you're going to be raised from the dead and that you're going to worship God face to face in his new creation in a new and perfect sinless body that will never tire or never grow old? The truth is, one day, when Jesus does return, all who love Christ will be raised from the dead. We will be both sinless soul and sinless body, living in perfect fellowship with our God. But for some reason, some really odd reason, we Christians always forget the truth of the resurrection. For some reason, we forget the really, really important fact that Jesus not only paid for our sins and satisfied by God's wrath by dying, but he also conquered death by rising again. And in conquering death, he ensures our victory over physical and spiritual death too. 
My point is that if we leave out the resurrection, we preach an incomplete gospel. And that essentially is what 1 Corinthians 15 is about. Um, in our journey through 1 Corinthians, we've seen Paul address a lot of different things, from wisdom and pride to spiritual gifts, to the necessity of love, to orderly worship in the church. And now Paul turns to a different uh, topic, the resurrection of the dead. That is the reality that we're going to, uh, that one day Christ is going to make his creation new and that'll give us new physical bodies to enjoy. And apparently the idea that Christians would rise from the dead in new life was being scoffed at in the church. Some people just couldn't get their heads around this idea of the resurrection. And we know that because later in the chapter, Paul will argue, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then blank. Or if blank, then how could you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? And if you remember anything from when we talked about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, the church at the time would have really had been swimming in um, these Greek philosophies that would have viewed a bodily resurrection of the dead as this ridiculous idea. Um, and that's because there was this really popular idea in philosophy that the physical was evil and, um, and that it was just this cage that the soul needed to be set free from. And the goal of life was to be liberated from your physical form and transcend into a completely spiritual existence. And because of that um, understanding of humanity, the idea of existing as a physical being, having a physical body in a spiritual afterlife, um, while having fellowship with a spiritual God, that was just laughable. It was just ridiculous. It didn't make sense, and they couldn't understand why you would want that. However, on the other hand, Jesus himself was, had taught that a bodily resurrection um, from the dead was going to be a reality for both himself and for the people who believed in him and trusted in him as their savior. And so the fact that they are rejecting the resurrection of the dead um, is a really big problem for Paul because in his eyes, that's essentially saying the same thing as, um, as Jesus himself not rising from the dead. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then our faith is meaningless and Christianity is a lie. We see that in verses 13 and 14. Paul sees this situation, their unbelief about the, the resurrection of the dead, as a gospel issue. And getting the resurrection right uh, or getting it wrong was getting the gospel wrong. And while the topic of the resurrection might feel a little bit tangential with regards to the things that Paul had talked about so far, like speaking in tongues and prophecy and love and building up the church, I think we'll see that what he moves to talk about in this chapter is foundational, actually, to all of those things. The resurrection is foundational to using your spiritual gifts rightly because it's a gospel issue. The resurrection is foundational to loving and building up the church because it's a gospel issue. And so Paul addresses this topic um, at the very end of his, his, his address and his letter to the Corinthians because it's foundational. You cannot do all the other external acts that he has encouraged the church to do out of love um, without this foundation of the resurrection. And so that's where Paul is coming from when he writes this chapter. Um, the basic structure of the chapter is um, it's apologetic. So the first half, verses 1 through 34, Paul makes this case for um, makes this case for the reality of the resurrection. It's a real thing. And then in verses 35 to 58, the second half, he explains how the resurrection is possible. And throughout the whole chapter, He's going to argue that the resurrection of Christ and the subsequent resurrection of believers is the linchpin of the gospel. And so that's where our key idea comes from. It's that the gospel has no power without the resurrection of Christ Jesus. The gospel has no power without the resurrection of Christ Jesus. 
So to kick off his argument, um, he starts with the foundation, the things that come first. And so he's going to talk about the gospel. And so um, as we go through the passage, we're just going to look at it verse by verse and see what he's saying. But first, we have to read it. So um, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll start in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you now stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Okay, jumping right into verse 1, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain. So when confronting the Corinthians about this topic, Paul bases his address on the common confession that they should share as Christians, which is why he's reminding them of the gospel, the gospel that they already believe. The NASB translates this as, I make known to you the gospel I preached to you. And I like this wording because it, it um, shows that Paul has to remind them to make it known to them because they were not acting like they knew. The word that he used for make, uses for make known is the same word that he uses just a few sentences before in the last verses of chapter 14. Um, he says, if anyone does not know that my writings are a command of the Lord, that he is not known by God. And now at the beginning um, of, of this chapter, he uses the same verb to know, to tell them about the truly foundational things that they should already know, but seem to have forgotten. So in essence, he's saying, if you don't know this gospel that I preached to you, and if you don't live by it, then you don't know God. He's essentially calling them out. But at the same time, when he uses, unless you believed in vain, I don't think he's really questioning their salvation. I, later in verse 14, he'll say, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith was in vain. So what I think he's really getting at is that without the resurrection, they have believed in vain. If Jesus wasn't raised, they don't have grounds for faith. If Jesus didn't rise again, then Jesus was just some wise teacher with cool tricks who claimed to be God and then died. That means that they have believed a lie, that Christianity is a hoax. And, and that is why Paul is really, really set on proving them wrong. If we were to rephrase this um, intro verse, we could say, or two verses, we could say, you welcomed the gospel that I preached to you at first and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe in it, unless it was never true in the first place. And this is kind of an ironic jab because he goes on to show in the rest of the verses how there is so much proof that the gospel and the resurrection are true. And so in the rest of the passage, we're gonna see four pieces of evidence that Paul gives for the resurrection, four pieces of evidence. The first piece of evidence is the saving faith of the Corinthian church. The saving faith of the Corinthian church. Paul's kind of jab is really ironic because 
they themselves, the Corinthians, were supposed to and were proof of the resurrection. Surely there were unbelievers in their midst, of course. Surely there were people who were not convinced of the truth of the gospel. But the Corinthian church itself would not have existed in the first place if there hadn't been true believers in the church, true Christians who, um, when they heard of Jesus Christ dying and raise, rising again for the forgiveness of sins, truly trusted in Christ for salvation. And in displaying that, that salvific power of the gospel in themselves, in their continued belief in Christ, as they gathered as the body of Christ, they proved the power of the resurrection. So their very gathering, their existence as the church is proof that the gospel is real and that the gospel has power to save. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This isn't really an evangelistic message that he's preaching um, to, the first, to the church of Corinthians. He's, he's writing to believers. He's um, writing to believers who already knew and already professed that Jesus was raised from the dead in power. And so his aim is to convince them of that resurrection, or isn't to convince them of that resurrection because they already are convinced, um, but it's simply to remind them of it. It's to remind them that their resurrection comes, that their own resurrection comes on the heels of Jesus's. These are people who have already believed um, but they have simply forgotten a really, really important part. And so he starts by appealing to that common ground that they have, saying, remember the gospel that I preached to you, um, that, uh, that you believe. Remember your foundation. Okay, moving on to verse 3. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So in this section, verses three and four, Paul moves on to lay out the gospel. And he does so by reciting this, this creed, this confession or, or statement of the essentials of, of what they believe. Um, but at the same time, Paul packs this confession of the gospel that he makes with evidence. Paul is confident in the reality of this gospel message, and he wants his listeners to trust it too. And so right off the bat, he hits us with the most important truths of Christianity and of the whole universe. Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures. He was buried as a proof of his death, and he was raised from the dead and still lives. So Christ died for our sins, and he was raised from the dead. These are the two essentials to the core of the gospel story. Um, and what is interesting is that he adds these little side notes in accordance to the scriptures. Um, and, and here's our second evidence of the resurrection, the testimony of the scriptures. So initially, you might think um, when he says the testimony of the scriptures, uh, you might think of the gospels. Yeah, sure, it's written in the Bible. But remember that the Gospels hadn't actually been written at this time um, when Paul is writing his letter, and they hadn't been, hadn't been um, distributed to the church as scripture yet. So what he's referring to here specifically when he talks about, um, in, about the scriptures is the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures. And if we took the time to dig into the Old Testament, we would see that Jesus's death and his resurrection have been foretold all over the Old Testament, whether that be in direct prophecy or types. Um, for example, if we go all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, we can see Jesus's substitutionary atonement in, uh, typified in Genesis 22, when God provides a ram to Abraham to be sacrificed instead of Isaac, his only son. We see it again, the type of Jesus as the spotless sacrificial lamb. Um, and it begins this theme that we see starting in Exodus 12, when we see the blood of a spotless lamb spread across the doorposts of the homes of the Israelites so that the angel of death, death would pass over 
and spare the people of Israel, which it eventually enabled their freedom from Egypt. In Leviticus 16, we see the lamb and the goat making atonement for the sins of the people of Israel on the Day of Atonement. In Psalm 22, we have the words that Jesus would cry on the cross as his father forsook him. And most significantly, we see Jesus himself prophesied in Isaiah 53, when our suffering servant savior is described as the silent lamb led to the slaughter to take the sins of the world upon himself. But it's not only Christ's death um, that was according to the scriptures, but also his resurrection. In the book of Acts, um, Peter exposits Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, to show that it's, it speaks of the resurrection of Christ. So turn there, actually, with me to Acts 2, 22, and you can read along with me. Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. So this is proof from the scriptures that cannot be ignored. It's proof that both Jesus' death and his resurrection are just as God said they would be. Long ago, he promised that his son would be the propitiation for sins and that he would conquer death, and God followed through on the promises of his word. Um, just a small point of application for us here. First, I hope that that's like a, an exciting little taste of biblical theology, and um, that the, the scriptures are this united and consistent message of salvation. But I also hope that this provides a solid confidence for us to stand on. God pulled through. He brought about exactly what he planned. That which he started eternities past and put into motion thousands of year, years ago when he made his covenant with the people of Israel to be their God. He brought salvation to pass. Salvation that you get to enjoy today if you trust Christ. Um, and so if God can pull, pull through on his plan for redemption, what makes you think that he can't stay true to his word in your own life? Okay, back to, back to our evidences. So after his, this evidence of the scriptures giving witness to, to the resurrection, Paul goes on with evidence number three, eyewitness testimonies. Eyewitness testimonies. In evidence three, Paul lists a whole bunch of people that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. Real eyewitnesses um, that Christ really rose again. 
and that this creed of Jesus dying and rising again is universally considered to be true by all of these people. He's saying if the testimony of the scriptures isn't good enough for you, which it should be, um, if you can't believe that the scriptures um, predicted or prophesied that Jesus would die and rise again, then here's some really hard evidence that you cannot ignore. Um, and so there are five different five different evidences that he gives. Excuse me. The first is that Jesus appeared to Cephas. Um, who is also known as Peter. Then Jesus appeared to the 12 um, disciples. Then Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time. Then Jesus appeared to James, his brother. And then Jesus appeared to all of the apostles. This is a, a lot of people that saw the risen Christ. Um, and Paul is bringing all of these together as as hard evidence for the reality of, of Christ's resurrection. A few things to point out about, about why this list of testimonies is, is really shocking. First, verse five. So the person, the first person mentioned to meet Jesus in his resurrected body is Peter. Now, if you know anything about Peter, what do you know? It's that he rejected Jesus three times when Jesus was in his greatest moment of need. Peter rejected Jesus. And yet, he is the first person, at least within this account, that Jesus goes to meet. What forgiveness and pity and love must Christ have had for Peter to go to him first? Next, verse 6. Um, says that he appeared to 500 brethren at one time. So we don't really know who these 500 people are, but it, it doesn't really matter. Um, what matters is that 500 people is a lot of people to have seen Jesus risen from the dead. If Jesus maybe had only appeared to a few individuals or maybe small groups of people, then maybe those people would have been written off as liars or crazies. Um, but you cannot write off the testimony of 500 people who saw the risen Christ at one time. That's just not evidence that will go away easily. Um, and just as a little side comment, he says, most of whom remain until now, but some has, have fallen asleep. Um, and so Paul is saying most of those people, those 500 people at the time he was writing, um, most of those 500 people who saw Jesus with their own eyes are still alive. You can go talk to them. You can go hear their stories and hear it from themselves. It's proof. Um, fallen asleep here, he uses um, to mean that some of those people had, had died. Um, but Paul uses fallen asleep as a euphemism because eventually they're going to wake up because they were believers. They're going to wake up and they're going to be resurrected. Another note on verse 7, Paul mentions that Jesus appeared to James. So this is G James, um, as in Jesus' brother. And we can assume that Jesus' resurrection had a really big impact on James. Um, because we know from John 7 that before the crucifixion, James didn't actually believe that Jesus was, Jesus was the Messiah. He thought he was crazy. He thought he was, um, he, he was sick and an embarrassment. Um, but after he sees Jesus, James goes on to become an apostle. And then he becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. James's life gets completely turned around and upside down when he sees the risen Christ. So Paul's eyewitness evidence for this resurrection is compelling. There is so much of it. However, even though these people in the Corinthian church who are hearing this evidence lived during the time of the resurrection, even though they knew that there were still eyewitnesses alive, even though that there were these people going and telling people that Christ's resurrection was a reality, somehow the Corinthian church still managed to twist reality into something very different. Somehow they still got it wrong because they just couldn't submit themselves to the truth. Um, as a point of application here, 
I, I think there's actually an odd sense of comfort for us. If the resurrection was hard to believe, even for the people of Paul's time, I think it makes sense for it to be hard um, when uh, we are 2,000 years removed. And, uh, but however, to push back on that, although there are no more apostles now, and although there are no eyewitnesses of Jesus's resurrection, we still have a similar kind of proof in, um, in our, our day. And it's the church. How could the church have survived for over 2,000 years if God were not truly committed and powerful enough to protect his church? How could such a family like ours exist apart from a true bodily resurrection of Jesus how could there be so many believers around the world and throughout history, so many faithful Christian men and women who have fought for the truth and given their lives for the sake of the gospel? How could these people have true faith if the resurrection of the dead were not a sure reality for us? So guys, I, I really do think that it's okay to have doubts. It's okay to have questions. But what is important is what you do with your doubts. Are you afraid that the Bible can't handle the proof that you bring against it? Are you scared that the Bible can't stand up um, against the logic or the secular arguments or, or, or proof or science um, that you learn in school? Are you willing to test the scriptures and, and seek truth in them and um, be a good studier of, of scripture? Do you think that your questions, um, or do you think to yourself that having questions and doubts is an expression of weak faith? Um, and do you tell yourself, oh, I just need to trust God more? Or do you pray? Do you look for answers? Do you ask questions? Bring us your questions, guys. If you ever have questions about the Bible, about faith, about the reality of the resurrection, bring it to us. We have nothing to hide. The, the, we, we have really good answers from scriptures. As Paul shows here, um, the Bible makes a strong, strong case for itself. And it has legitimate historical evidence. The Bible is a legitimate historical text. And it can fend for itself. Um, don't be afraid to ask your questions and to bring your doubts. And, and so I think that is why Paul takes it where he does in verses 8 and 9. Um, he's going to build even more on his argument. He's saying that if the scriptures and if the eyewitness testimonies and if yourself aren't good enough proof for you, then let me show you how the resurrection has changed my own life. And that's evidence number four, Paul's transformed life. At this point, um, Paul takes a slight turn to talk about his own story and how she fits into the story of the gospel. And um, we see that in verses 8 and, eight and 9, or 8, 9, and 10. Uh, first, verses 8 and 9, he says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So the word that Paul uses for un, one untimely born to describe himself, it only appears here in the Bible. Um, but the meaning of it is pretty shockingly clear. The word carries this meaning of, of a stillborn child, of a, a miscarried child or an unnatural birth, even an, an aborted child. And um, it's a really, really odd way um, and humble and self-deprecating way to refer to himself. Um, and so it's very possible actually that this term, because it's so vulgar, was actually used as an insult against Paul um, by his enemies and by people who didn't see him as a legitimate apostle. We've seen all over 1 Corinthians about how he, uh, Paul has had to make um, a stand, take a stand for his own apostleship. Um, because there were these people who just really didn't like him and would berate him with accusations of him being weak, um, of him being fake, of him being a freak in comparison to other apostles. So 
Um, there's there's a, a there's a possibility that this was a term that was used against him. But what is really interesting is that instead of running away from this really terrible insult, and instead of trying to defend himself in this gloriously Pauline and humble way, he boldly picks up that term and uses that in insult and just owns it. The Corinthians are like, you aren't legit. Why do you get to tell us what to do and how to live? You aren't a real apostle. You're not spiritual enough. You weren't there when Jesus was raised. You didn't follow Jesus at first. You're a counterfeit. You're a sinner. You're weak and you're not qualified. And in response, Paul is just like, sure, I have my faults. I'm not perfect. I am the least of the apostles. By your standards, I'm not qualified. But what you see as weakness and therefore evidence of my lesser standing, I see and understand and know to be true evidence of my calling given to me by the Lord to be an apostle. By the grace of God, I am what I am, is what he says. So what is odd is that Paul agrees with them on the charge that he's not qualified, but it's not actually for the reasons that they give. At the beginning of um, 1 Corinthians, we know that they had deemed him as weak and not spiritual enough. But instead of addressing that, instead of, of agreeing with them, he brings up his past. It's a, a really interesting way to, to defend himself. Um, if you know anything about Paul, you would know that before he was saved, he was an infamous Christian killer. In Galatians, he confesses that he persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. In Acts 26, he confesses that he was so set on opposing the name of Jesus that he would have Christians arrested and then vote to have them executed. And in raging fury, he punished and tortured people in the synagogue to get them to give up their faith. Um, and he persecuted Christians far and wide, even outside of Jerusalem. And so it's really odd that instead of trying to paint himself in a better light, he does the opposite. He brings more and even heavier evidence to the table that shows that by worldly standards and by the standards of the Corinthians, he is not qualified to be an apostle. But in contrast, it shows that only the immense grace of God could save and forgive a sinner like him. And in doing so, Paul puts the power of the gospel on display in his own life. Even Paul was not too far gone to be saved by God. The Christian killer was not so outside of the reach of God that he couldn't be forgiven and changed. And God did that. God forgave him. And how did God do it? How did God turn the most hated enemy of the church into the most beloved preacher of the church? He showed up in his resurrected glory. And Paul came face to face with Jesus Christ himself. By the power of the risen Christ, this enemy of the cross, who is notorious for extreme persecution against Christians, was transformed into one of the most important figures in the Bible after Jesus himself. The most prominent missionary of the New Testament, the most prominent church planter, and the most prolific writer of the New Testament. And it's all because of the grace of God. Paul's apostolic authority was not earned. It was given to him, and not by the Corinthians, but by God in his grace. God did it. And the only reason why that sort of forgiveness was possible was because Jesus Christ, the perfect man, had done it. And 
had risen again. And he had washed Paul clean. And he had given him new resurrection life as well. Paul himself is an evidence of the power of the gospel. And the gospel um, has no power and no power for Paul if Jesus had stayed in that grave. He goes on though. Verse 10, he says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. What he says here points all the way back to verse 2 and also forward to verse 14. He's making this point that the resurrection is what secures the efficacy of God's unmerited favor. And Paul's own life, transformed drastically by grace, is what proves that the gospel has power. His life is, is, is evidence for the gospel and its power. Um, he goes on saying, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Um, and this last comment represents a, a really important heart change that comes with gospel transformation. Paul responded to grace with hard work. God's grace did not enable him to be lazy or just to relax, but to work. He's saying, my intense labors in the gospel are ultimately not the result of a personal need to compensate God for his grace, but are themselves a reflection of that very grace at work in my life. This work is a reflection of the power of God to save through his gospel and through Christ's resurrection. God's grace required a response, and he did so. He responded in hard work. And God receives the glory because he makes it clear that it isn't Paul who works, but God himself. Thus, Paul capitalizes on these accusations that people had brought against him. Uh, and he capitalizes on his own lowliness by putting God's grace and the power of the resurrection gospel on display. Finally, Paul returns to his first point in, in chapter, in verse 11, excuse me. He says, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. It didn't matter who actually preached the gospel to them. They still believed the message and they were still transformed. They still proved that the gospel is powerful. And that goes all the way back to evidence number one. Um, he pulls that conversation back to his point that the gospel is proved to be true. The resurrection is proved to have power because the church is real, because the church has faith. In our passage, we saw that Paul set up his discussion on the reality of um, the bodily resurrection that he'll be talking later on about um, in the good news of the gospel. That's the foundation. That's square one. And it's simply, as we saw, that Jesus died and rose again. But he also gave us evidences for truth that Christ rose again. Undeniable evidence. And each of those testimonies that we saw in, uh, in the evidences are, are still true for us today. To close, my big application question for us is, do you live like the resurrection is real? We have all of the, these evidence. We have eyewitness accounts. We have the testimony of scripture. We have Paul and his transformed life. But what about you? Do you live a transformed life? James and Peter, though they had rejected Christ, are forgiven and become key leaders for the church. Paul himself, who was the greatest persecutor of the church, becomes the engine of the church. All of these people had their lives turned upside down. Have you been transformed too? Of course, maybe you're not persecuting the church and putting people to death. Um, and maybe you're not outwardly rejecting Christ. But what's going on in your heart? Are you still rebelling against God in your own way? Do you 
think that you rule over your life? Or have you come in contact with the truth that Jesus Christ died for you? And in doing so, he took all of the sin that you could not atone for and suffered because he loves you. But when he died, he didn't stay in that grave, but rose again to conquer it, to conquer sin and death and declare you righteous and alive. Do you believe that truth? Have you encountered this good news? And has your life changed so much that your life is shaped by it? Do you live like the resurrection is real? Just as a, a final application to give us something tangible to do, um, um, something to think about, I want to encourage you this weekend to practice living in light of the resur resurrection by making a confession of faith to God, just like how Paul does in, in the message. Just simply tell God um, all of the things that you believe about him. You can write it down. You can say it out loud. Um, this is just like a little list that, that I made. Or it's kind of, but you can make a list like this. God, I believe that you are the one and only God, maker of heaven and earth. God, I believe that you made mankind to know you and to worship you. But my sin condemned me to be separated from you for eternity. God, I believe that you promised salvation to your people, Israel, and that you kept your promise by sending your son, Jesus, to live the perfect life, to die a perfect death. God, I believe that I am a sinner through and through, that you still set your love upon me before the foundation of the world. God, I believe that if I repent of my sin and put my faith in you, that I will have everlasting life in you. God, I believe that every day you are with me, working in my heart to make me more like Jesus. God, I believe that one day I will be resurrected too, just as Jesus was. God, I believe that for now, while I await that glorious day, that I am called to live in obedience and service to you, not for myself. So I encourage you just to, to write out all these things that you believe and, and confess those things to God. And then take those things that are really big in your life and set them against those truths. Take the things that, that are consuming your mind, that consume your thoughts and your time and set them against those truths. Um, here are some of the things that, that I write, or might write. So I struggle a lot with, with having motivation to do my schoolwork, to be completely honest. Um, I would definitely rather just play video games and sleep. Um, so I might, might say, God, I confess that I don't like doing my schoolwork, but because I live in obedience to you and to honor you, I'm going to try my best and rely on your strength to do what you call me to do as a student. Please give me joy when I seek faithfulness to you. Another thing, I tend to care a lot about what people think about me. Surprising as that would be. So I might say, God, I am constantly thinking about how people view me, but because I know that one day I will be with you for eternity, I can care less about what other people think of me and care more about what you think of me. I think a lot about my future too. I'm uh, worried often that I didn't make the right choice or that I'm not gonna be happy. And so maybe I'd say, God, I'm afraid of the unknowns of the future, but I know that I am made to know and worship you. And I know that I will spend eternity with you. So please help me to prepare for eternity by putting my happiness and satisfaction in you and not in the things of the world. Guys, how, how drastically do you think our lives would change if we lived by the truths of the resurrection every day? If we did everything and thought, um, and if, every, sorry, if everything that we thought and did 
and believed and wanted and dreamed of was guided by these truths. Let's live in light of the resurrection. Can you pray with me? Father, I thank you so, so much for your word and for the, the, the evidence that you give us in your scriptures for the reality that Jesus Christ, your one and only son, came and lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, rose again and conquered death. And because he has new life, or he has life, I can have life too. We can have life too. Father, I thank you for that truth that unites us. And I pray that you would help us to live in light of it. Father, we every day have major gospel amnesia. We are constantly forgetting the truth that you have given us in your word. Um, and so I pray that even this weekend, that, that you would um, help us call to mind these truths, that they would inform the way that we think and love and live and make decisions and, and hope for the future. Father, I pray that the, the truths of the gospel would, would seep deep into our hearts um, and that they would express themselves in, in every area of our lives, whether that be school, relationships, or friendships, the way that we care for other people in youth group, the, the way that we um, interact with and love our families, the way that we live and serve you, live for and serve you. Um, and, and Father, I, I pray that um, the resurrection would be good, good, good hope and truth for us, and that we would be convinced and that there would be no other way to live except living in light of the resurrection. Father, be with us as we go to small groups. I pray that you would bless our conversations and, um, and help us open up, help us uh, lay out our hearts and, and walk with each other. May you be glorified and honored in our conversations. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.